This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan, a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. For more information, check out fpchurch.tv. If you have your Bibles, uh, I encourage you to open to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 18 through 25. And uh, while you're doing that, just want to say thank you to Pastor Carr for the invite. It's a, it's a, a great treat as well as an honor to be here on Deb, Debbie and Ian's special day. So, Lord bless you all. Listen and hear the word of God. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the prophet, what the Lord through the prophet Isaiah had said, behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son. They will call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took, his, took Mary as his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your goodness in giving us the day as a gift, this place as a gift, time as a gift, your word as a gift, your spirit as a gift. And we ask you to be gracious to us and take your word and open it up. Make it come alive, please. Use it to touch us in ways that we can only dream of and be praised and honored as we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. When the fog rolls in. It was 32 years ago this last week at Detroit Metro Airport. There was a horrible crash, uh, one that has all been, been forgotten now. It was a cold and foggy pea soup kind of day, December 3rd, 1990 when Northwest Flight 299, a Boeing 727, was on the main runway and it was preparing for takeoff. At the same time, there was another Northwest Flight 1482, a DC-9, and it was taxiing through the fog on its way to do the same. Unfortunately, in the fog, the pilot of the second plane became disoriented. 
and he made not one but two wrong turns. And he taxied his plane right into the middle of the main runway, directly into the path of the oncoming Boeing 727, which was at this point accelerating and just beginning to lift off the ground. Seconds before, the flight officer on the DC-9 radioed the control tower, told them that they thought, excuse me, they might have taken a wrong turn. Indeed. The tower supervisor looked out but was unable to see either plane because of the fog. And so he immediately issued the command to stop all aircraft. But unfortunately, it was too late. The 727, which is now racing down the runway, struck the DC-9 almost head-on, severing one of its wings. Fuel began pouring out of the DC, both planes, and the DC-9 burst into flames. And as a result, eight people died and 24 others were injured. One of those who died was a young flight attendant by the name of Heidi Joost, who, if I remember correctly now, if my memory serves me well, used to attend this church, used to worship at this church back then. When we read Matthew's account of how the birth or the origin of Jesus came about, we are reading the story largely from Joseph's perspective. We are reading the personal testimony of a man of faith, an ordinary blue-collar tradesman who one day finds himself smack dab in the middle of the main runway in time for the liftoff of what would arguably prove to be the greatest event in all of human history. And in the midst of the fog, we see a man, though, who is disoriented, and he is struggling to make sense of it all. He is struggling to know what to do, struggling to be faithful to the pathway that God himself has placed him on. A man whose soul is desperately conflicted between choosing and submitting to God's will for his life versus his own. The choice between staying on the path that God has asked him to take or finding his own way through the fog. Joseph is a bit of an enigma. He has no lines in the Christmas pageant whatsoever. I mean, we know he was there. We know what he did, but we don't know what he said or thought or anything that he felt. We know very little about this man or what happened to him afterwards. Apart from the passage, In Luke's gospel, uh, when Jesus is 12 years old in Jerusalem, Joseph never reappears on the pages of Scripture after this event is over. And yet, his role in the first advent, humanly speaking anyway, is crucial to the birth of Jesus happening in the way that God intended, planned, and willed. For Joseph, the first advent was filled with darkness. And when we look at that, we see a man who is struggling to find his way 
through the moral fog of it all. He is struggling to make sense of what God is asking of him and what he knows and what he's afraid to do. We are told in the beginning of this passage, this is how the birth or the origin of Jesus the Christ came about. The word translated birth there or origin is the word from which we get our English word genesis. This is the genesis of Jesus the Christ. And you see in Matthew is taking us all the way back to the first pages of scripture to Genesis 1. In the beginning, the creation account, when God by his spirit was hovering over, brooding and moving over the waters in the darkness. A day and time when God first spoke into the darkness, into the fog, and there was light. A day when God sovereignly brought order out of chaos. And Matthew here is hinting, I believe, at the fact that something far more momentous, far more colossal than that is about to happen. It is the birth, the genesis of Jesus, and it is in a class all its own. This is the beginning, this is the origin of how the birth of Jesus came about. We're told before they came together. Marriage customs in that day uh, generally involve three phases, broad phases, if you will. The first step or phases where the bride and groom, they make vows to one another. They pledge their intent with, with respect to one another. But the marriage would not be consummated at that point. And then after their vows, the second phase begins. The groom returns home to finish making all the preparations, getting everything ready for his wife, which, by the way, is why, even though they're living separately, they are legally married. It's why the text in the front end says they were pledged or engaged to be married, and at the end it says Joseph took Mary home as his wife. The official ceremony, or phase three, would take place when everything was ready and the groom and his friends, the wedding party, would come for the bride, bring her back home to where then the wedding festivities would begin. They often lasted a whole week. And then, only then, was the relationship consummated. In Matthew's text, we are, it, we are during the second phase and before the third begins, where we're told that Joseph... Uh, discovers something that is shocking to him. He learns something. He discovers something. He finds out one day that Mary's pregnant. It's obvious. She begins to show. And in that day, this is a heartbreaking scandal because Joseph discovers only after Mary returns home from visiting Auntie Elizabeth. Joseph learns, and presumably from Mary, that the woman he dearly loved is pregnant. And the second thing he knows without a shadow of a doubt is he's not the father. And our problem in our culture is we read this text and we yawn. We don't get, why is this such a big deal? Who cares? In that day, it was a gigantic scandal. Our problem is that we live in a culture so jaded. We're like Jeremiah, where God says, 
we don't know how to blush anymore. Or as Isaiah said, we are in a culture that calls good evil and evil good. And what's worse about all this from Joseph's perspective is the incredible explanation. He is being asked to swallow hook, line, and sinker. He's being asked to swallow the truth that this entire mess is God's doing. This is the hard part. The whole thing is God's fault. It's God's mess. Mary is pregnant, it says, because of the Holy Spirit's direct involvement and activity. And it's obvious from the text that Joseph is having a hard time believing what he's been told. That first advent, we look at a man of faith and he is struggling in the moral darkness of his life and he's struggling to make sense of it all. Because what he knows is that the woman he loved is pregnant. The woman he loved is not what he thought she was or what she appeared to be. The one person he trusted more than anybody else in this world has seemingly violated trust. And it happened so fast. I mean, one moment, Joseph is just living out his life with the joyful expectation of everything he's prepared for, waited for, anticipated, longed for, his wedding day with his beloved Mary. And then the next minute, everything is upside down. Everything comes crashing down. The phone call wakes you up in the middle of the night. The legal papers are served. The pink slip arrives. The biopsy results confirm your worst fears and the suffocating fog, even for people of strong faith, begins to roll in and settle upon you. For Joseph, the first advent was shrouded in darkness. It centered around a moral dilemma. Matthew provides us a front row seat, an honest glimpse into the soul of a man, a man who is also struggling with his own conflicting desires and thoughts and fears. This is his dilemma. He's in a moral quandary because he is a righteous man of faith. The text says, Joseph being a righteous man. We can get it to come up. There we go, thank you. Joseph's problem is because he is a righteous man. It doesn't mean he was sinful, sinless rather, doesn't mean he was perfect. It just means he's in a right relationship with God and that he orders his life rightly according to the blueprint of God's word. And it is because of his relationship with God that he is struggling with what is the right thing to do here. The right thing as prescribed by God's law. His moral dilemma is because he is trying to live out a righteous life before God and on behalf of Mary. He is torn between doing the right thing in God's sight and what he'd rather do for Mary. He's torn between saving face and extending grace or becoming, being redemptive because he's trying to live according to the book. 
Joseph's options in that day and time are very, very few. They're very clear, painfully clear in the word, but he doesn't have a whole lot of options here. One, he could marry her and live with the inevitable gossip and the social ostracism from people who would naturally assume Joseph's the dad. He could also try to save his own reputation by legally dissolving the marriage and leaving Mary to fend for himself, for herself, excuse me. It's what a lot of men, unfortunately, do. Things haven't changed much, have they? Unfortunately, that would expose Mary to public humiliation and disgrace. Or Joseph, his third option was he could privately divorce her, try to pick up the pieces and get on with his life. There was a legal provision, if you will, in the law of Moses that that was used for things that were considered morally indecent. It's the word from which we get our English word pornography. But it would bring about a private, quiet, discreet divorce so that other than the immediate families, few people would need to know what happened or why. And most importantly for Joseph, it would spare Mary from the worst of potential outcomes. And we're told in the text that Joseph was leaning to the third option. He was going to divorce her quietly and privately. Why? Because he didn't want to expose her to public shame. See, he's a righteous man. Not perfect, but he's righteous. He's on a path, as D.A. Carson points out, would, quote, leave both Joseph's righteousness intact and his compassion intact. And Joseph, whether he realizes it or not, is wrestling with the old, age-old tension or balance between law and grace, between being faithful to God's word and obeying it and applying it in a redemptive fashion. As Habakkuk once prayed to God, Dear Lord, in judgment, please, please remember mercy. The first advent focuses on a man of faith struggling to find his way through the moral fog, a man of genuine faith struggling with a dilemma. But he is also a man of faith struggling with what it means to take God at his word. There's a decision that has to be made. He can't put this off forever. Mary is showing. We're told in the text that after he had considered all of this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. God graciously appears. God shows up and brings this calming assurance to a humble carpenter in the middle of a long, painful, troubling, restless night. God invades Joseph's life. God makes his presence known. He reveals himself, and he speaks a word to the angel into the fog. This is the first of four appearances that the angel of the Lord will make in the early chapters of Matthew. His arrival is a reminder of other unannounced appearances that God has made in Scripture at critical moments in days gone by. There is the time when the angel of the Lord appeared to the pregnant Hagar and her unborn son and promised her God's protection and great blessing if she would simply humble herself, return home to Abraham and Sarah, and to submit to them. 
There was the day in Genesis 22 where God, through the angel of the Lord, calls from heaven to Abraham at the very split second when Abraham is about to bring the knife down to slay his own son. Or the day the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a burning bush and sent him back to Pharaoh with much kicking and screaming to be sure. But God sent him to Pharaoh and the rest, as they say, is history. So when the angel of the Lord appears here at this moment, it's a signal. It's like this flashing neon light and all the buzzers go off. You ever been in an airport and all of a sudden you're walking down the hall and all of a sudden it goes, woo, 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 woo. I think something's up. The angel of the Lord intervenes, appears, arrives, and he has something important to say. After Joseph considered all this, the angel of the Lord appears to him. God is heading Joseph off at the pass. God is supernaturally intervening in the still of the night. Notice the text says, after he considered this plan and before he acts on his own plan, God shows up at the right time and the right moment. The older saints used to say, God is never late, but he's rarely early. And I don't want you, but that drives me nuts some days. It is a reminder, though, to you and to me, to anyone who's actually genuinely trying to follow God's will and guidance, that he always directs in some way, shape, or fashion. And that's because, as Hebrews says, he's the same today as he was yesterday, as he will be tomorrow and forevermore. It also reminds us that our job is no different than Joseph's was. It is as Proverbs 3 says, to trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. Another way to put it is our job is to keep our knees on the ground, our nose in the book, and our eye on the sky and the Lord Jesus, as Pastor Lawrence, my pastor, used to say back in 1844. (laughs) The angel of the Lord's appearance and arrival screams good news that God has not abandoned this world. God not only shows up, but God has something to say. The angel speaks. God graciously enters the impenetrable impenetrable fog of Joseph's broken world, and he speaks softly to a troubled man and tenderly to encourage him. A man wrestling with the age-old tension between law and grace. And in the stillness of that night, God communicates several things to Joseph in almost rapid machine gun-like fire. God first calls him by name. He says, Joseph, son of David. He doesn't cop out and send an email or a text or the coward's way out, which is to post it on social media. God does this personally, upfront and personal, and he calls Joseph by name. As God in Isaiah's day would later remind his people, 
quote, I have written your name on the palms of my hand. It's like a permanent tattoo with your name on it. I never forget any of my children. I know them all by name. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. Afraid of what? Afraid of stepping up to the plate. Afraid of stepping out in faith. And your fear of taking Mary as your lawfully wedded wife. To take and assume the burden and responsibilities of a father to a child that isn't his. To trust and obey. What God is asking of you is both the best and the most righteous thing to do. There's a contrast at this point because just as God requested Mary's humble submission to his plan before she conceived, Joseph is now being asked for humble submission to God's plan after she has conceived. A few months earlier, Mary was told the child's name. Now Joseph is being told the reason for that name. The reason for giving their firstborn this particular name, and there are a couple of reasons for that. One is, he said, you are to give him the name Jesus. Literally, it's Joshua, which translated is the Lord saves. Now, there are several Joshuas in the Bible, great men of faith and saviors, but this one has been destined by God to be the greatest Joshua of them all. And why is he to be called Jesus? Because he will save his people from their sins. Joseph has been chosen, chosen to be the very means through which Jesus then will solve mankind's greatest problem and need, the problem with which every last human being is born and infected with, same problem you have and I have. It's an incurable problem called sin. You are to call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. There's another reason, though, that's not quite so obvious uh, as to why he's named Jesus. Matthew here is quoting Psalm 130, verse 8. And I would encourage you later today to go back and read that psalm because what's astounding about that is in Psalm 130, the one who saves his people from their sins is the Lord God himself. But in Matthew, Matthew says the he in that verse that is God in the psalm is now being applied to Jesus. He is more, he, Jesus, is more than just a mere man. He is the God-man. So that the miracle of the virgin birth is also a miracle of the incarnation. I don't understand it. I do believe it. The truth is that Jesus is both fully God and fully man at the same time. Which brings Joseph and us to the central focus of this all. It's a quote from Isaiah 7. The reason why God has invaded time and space on this particular night and why he's asking all of this of Joseph. We are told all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord said through the prophet Isaiah. The virgin will conceive, she will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. Translated, God is 
with us. The message of Advent is the astounding and amazing good news of Emmanuel, that God in the person of Christ Jesus is with us. It's God's wonderful message about a supernatural birth of a supernatural person for a supernatural work. It is God's stunning message of good news, great joy, and of unbelievable hope to all who will humbly believe. It is the greatest Christmas gift of all, the gift of forgiveness of sins by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Or as Max Lucado put it, if our greatest need had been for information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been for technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need was money, God would have sent us an economist. But since our greatest need is forgiveness, God sent us a savior. And I hope you're glad he did. Emmanuel, God is with us, God incarnate, God with skin on, if you will. And so the angel of the Lord's appearance and arrival screams such good news of God's first advent, God's first arrival in Christ in the midst of the fog and just in the nick of time. And the reminder that God has not abandoned either us or this world to find our own way or to foolishly try and save ourselves because we cannot. That God in Christ Jesus has come to save us from our sins and show us a way through and out of the fog of this fallen world. That's why we sang the song we did earlier. It's a prayer. The stanza is a prayer and the, the chorus is the answer to the prayer. And the prayer is, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appears. That's the prayer. And you know what the answer is in the song? Rejoice. Rejoice. Why? Because Emmanuel has come to you, O Israel. Emmanuel, Christ Jesus, has come in fulfillment of all God has promised. Jesus himself then is sort of the hinge or the, the linchpin, the continuity between both Old and New Testaments. And his arrival, at it is the, along with him, is the gift of salvation. It's the result of God's divine purpose and plan. Rejoice, O Israel, he has come. And the scriptures say he's coming again. And if you belong to him, by faith in Christ, you are part of the new Israel of God in Christ Jesus, Galatians 6. But like any gift, God's gift has to be taken personally and opened up to be enjoyed. I'm pretty sure most of you are driving yourself crazy right now buying gifts, spending money. It's the American dream, I think. And on Christmas morning, most of us will gather with someone in our family and we will share gifts. It's a good thing to do. 
But what if you purchase a gift for somebody and you gave it to someone and they said, well, thanks a lot, but it's not what I'm interested in. It won't do you any good. It might be a wonderful gift. The giver may have gone to great lengths and personal expense, but until you actually take the gift, say thank you for it, and receive it yourself, it does no good. The gift of eternal life and salvation from sin in Christ Jesus requires of you and me, it requires of us that we humble ourselves and by faith receive God's gift by, again, grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 39 years ago this past week, my wife Linda and I experienced that very reality in our lives, in this very sanctuary, where someone over there is sitting right now. And that single event has made all the difference in the world. It has changed the entire course of our lives and the lives of our family for eternity as well. Finally, Matthew closes with these words, that when Joseph awoke, notice he did what the angel commanded. He did what he was asked to do. He obeyed. And we see God's supernatural empowerment of his spirit, the same empowerment that enabled Mary to submit to God's will for her life is now evident and at work in Joseph as well because his obedience is immediate, it is complete, it tells us what he did, and it tells us what he did not do. He took her home as his legally wedded wife, but he did not consummate the marriage until the child was born. He followed through on his commitment both to God and to his beloved Mary. He followed through despite everything else he could have done or what other people may have encouraged him to do. And Joseph acts on what he knows, the little bit that he knows and the little bit that he's been told, and he takes that information and walks by faith through the middle of that fog. He walks by faith in the light of God's word, the light of what God's told him, and he begins to walk one step at a time, one day at a time, by faith in a Jesus God with us. And he continued walking each day, trusting God to provide a little more light on his path as it was needed for every day. And as I wrap this up, I would want to remind you then and point out to you this, that Joseph, by doing so, provides a pattern of faith for us this Advent a pattern of asking God for the light that you need for this day and then acting upon what God in his word has revealed or makes clear to you, not what he doesn't or what you don't understand, but acting on what he reveals to you and what you do get today and then trusting as you walk along the path that he calls you to take, trusting that God will then shine just enough light today for today and then just enough light tomorrow for tomorrow and the next day and the next day and a pattern of reminding ourselves that as we do 
that God in Christ Jesus, Emmanuel, is with you and at work in you and through you for a purpose the magnitude of which only eternity will reveal. When Joseph awoke, he did. As the old song says, trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And because Joseph did just that, God used him that first advent to begin changing the world one soul at a time, beginning with himself. Even when the fog rolled in. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your spirit's presence. Thank you for your voice. Take the seat of your word, please. Plant it deep within our souls. May it find good soil. Guard it, protect it, water it, cause it to grow and bear fruit. For your glory and for our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. For more information, please visit us online at fpchurch.tv.